Last week, we looked at Friday, the cross, the crucifixion, the horror, the agony, all that Friday represents. Next week, we're going to look at the resurrection, the excitement, the joy, the enthusiasm, the, the wonder, the awe. And today we get to look at Saturday. Yeah. Do you know what the Bible says about Saturday? Matthew does say that the priest remembered that Jesus said he was going to be raised on the third day, so they went to have the Roman seal put on the stone so that if anybody tried to take him out and say that he was risen, they'd be summarily murdered themselves. So, what am I going to preach about? Look again. Not everything is as it seems. I submit to you that there was rejoicing on Saturday. There was. In heaven, they were rejoicing because they heard Jesus say, It is finished! And it reverberated throughout heaven over and over again. It is finished. He did it. He pulled it off. He died. He paid the penalty. Man can be redeemed. He did it. It is finished. The battle's over. It is finished. There'll be no more war. It is finished. The conflict is over. And Jesus is Lord. Amen. Amen. Yeah, they were rejoicing in heaven. You can believe it. They were rejoicing on earth. Yeah. Yeah. The religious leaders are saying, <laughs> we did it. We did it. We got rid of that guy. They were patting each other on the back, congratulating each other, saying, what a wonderful job we did. He was threatening our position. He was threatening our security in, under the Roman Empire. And he's gone. He's dead. It's over. Woo! We did it. And I would suggest to you that there was rejoicing in hell. Satan thought he had won the victory. I just think the demons of hell were patting him on the back and saying, ha, 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 we got God this time. They were rejoicing in heaven, on earth, even in hell, on silent Saturday. No, it wasn't. Not everything's as it appears. They were grieving. You don't grieve in silence, folks. Maybe some of you might, but I don't think Mary was silent. I think she was sobbing, mourning, wailing. Her little Yeshua. God's gift to her as a virgin. Hanging on a cross between thieves. And he was innocent. A mother's heart breaking and sobbing. 
because her little Shua was gone. The disciples had to be too. They'd lost their rabbi. An unconventional rabbi. They didn't go to him and ask to be one of his students. He came and hand-picked every one of them. And they left everything behind and for three years traveled with him, gave up everything, and now he's gone. Talk about broken hearts. Plans and hopes and dreams like ashes at your feet. Their rabbi was gone. They had come at least in part to understand that he was the Christ, the anointed one from God. They maybe didn't have it all put together, but they did know that he was the Messiah. And they had hope that they were going to be part of an, of an earthly kingdom. But that hope's gone. He's dead in Joseph's tomb. And they wept. And they mourned. I don't know how long it took for the word of Jesus' death to go throughout Jerusalem or even into the surrounding areas. But I just believe that everyone whose life had been changed by the hand of Jesus were mourning. Saturday. Silent? No, grieving's not silent. I think there were a lot of questions being asked out loud to one another. I think one of the biggest questions that was being asked was by the priest who said, what are we going to do about that veil? I mean, it's what separated the Holy of Holies from the holy place. And in there was God's presence and anyone who went in God's presence without being properly ceremonial cleansed from sin would die. I think it's interesting the fact that they knew it was torn from the top to the bottom. How'd they know that? Most likely there were priests in the holy place going through their preparations and saw it happen. How else would they know? And you know what? This veil wasn't a sheet. It wasn't even a blanket. It was a curtain. Talk about a blackout curtain. It doesn't say it in scripture, but the tradition has it that it was a man's hand width, about four inches thick. That's a lot of material. And even if somebody had gotten a ladder and went to the top and in that temple, it was about 60 feet up there. That's quite a ladder. How is a man going to tear a curtain that's four inches thick? No. What does this mean? They had to be asking. What does this mean? What happened? How did that happen? What are we going to do now? They had other curtains. They had 
Tradition says 85 young ladies weaving a new curtain, two a year, to replace the other one because it would get dirty, dusty, and they would put up a new one. I think the disciples were talking to each other and asking, what went wrong? What happened? Less than a week ago, we were marching into Jerusalem and the whole crowd was singing Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then they turned on him and were shouting, crucify him. What happened? How could that happen? Where did Jesus fail? He said he was coming to set up his kingdom, but he's dead. Where did he fail? We usually only think about Peter denying Jesus, but they all did. I think they had to be asking themselves, why did I forsake him? Why didn't I stand up? Why? What am I going to do now? I left everything. What am I going to do? Their hopes, their dreams, their plans, their goals, their ambitions. We're in a tomb. What am I going to do? What am I going to do? There were the ladies who had followed Jesus and hadn't really thought about it, but, you know, where did they spend their nights? They didn't have a holiday inn. There weren't many homes that were big enough to invite 13 men to spend the night or food to feed them. So there was a group of women who were dedicating their service to Jesus, who traveled with them and prepared their meals and, and did those kinds of things for them. And they slept out in, out in the open many nights. And they were saying, who's going to roll the stone away? How are we going to get in and finish the preparation of Jesus' body? How? Who? Questions. Look again. Not everything's as it seems. I asked myself the question, what was Jesus doing? You said, well, duh. He was in the tomb. Yes, he was. His body. His body was in the tomb. That's why there aren't any recorded words of Jesus. <laughs> he wasn't there to speak them. But when on the cross he said, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. And he died, breathed his last. His body 
and soul and spirit were separated. That's what death is. Separation of spirit and body. That was the God, the Son, still alive. And Jesus said, while he was on the cross with the thief, this day, I'm going to be with you in paradise. Jesus, the body, was in the tomb. God, the Son, went to paradise. He was busy. The prophecies say that the Messiah, the Son of God, would descend into Sheol. That's the Old Testament word for the place of the dead. In the New Testament, it was Hades, the place of the dead. And it's an interesting study to understand that the place of the dead was the, was the disembodied spirits of those who had lived. The righteous were in paradise or in Abraham's bosom, and the unrighteous were in torment. I think we see that best described in the parable that Jesus told about the rich man and Lazarus. And uh, they both died and the rich man looked into Abraham's bosom and saw Lazarus there and asked that he could get him some water. Both in the same place. But one group was suffering a big gulf so that none could go from one to the other. And the other place, they were in the place, the place of faith. That's Abraham's bosom. He was the father of faith. And Jesus says to Lazarus, Jesus says to the thief on the cross, I'm going to be with you in paradise today. And why was he there? Because he came to take paradise from Sheol or Hades and bring them all into the presence of God. You say, well, where do you get that? Because the scripture tells us, Paul tells us, that to be absent from the body, that's death, is to be present with the Lord. Well, we don't go to paradise anymore, the place of the dead. We go right into the very presence of God. See, there were things happening on Saturday that were going to benefit us to be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord. Those who died and were righteous had faith that Jesus, the Messiah, was coming, died looking forward to his death, just as we, on this side, look back to his death in faith, believing that it was for us. And when he went to paradise, he, re he revealed to them that he was the one for whom they had been waiting, and they believed, and he ushered them into the presence of the Lord. Now, I didn't say it then because I would have given it away, but I think in heaven there was some a lot more rejoicing for those who had been in paradise because they were now in his presence. The scripture tells us that even when one lost sheep is found, the heavens rejoice. 
And that's just when we're born again here, now. What kind of rejoicing do you suppose it is when one of the saints of God is ushered into his presence for the first time? The thief on the cross was probably the first rejoicing in heaven. The next one's going to be tough. I, 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 don't know how, I don't know how to describe it. But Hebrews 9.27 tells us that it's appointed unto man once to die. That's Jesus. He did. And after that, the judgment. God the Son had to face judgment. Because he had your sins on his account. My sins. The scripture says that Jesus, God laid on him the sins or the iniquities of us all. Can you imagine that? From the very first time that Eve ate of the forbidden fruit until the last sin is committed before there is no more time and world as we know it. All those sins, both past and future, were funneled onto Jesus and he died the death that every one of those sins deserves. Do you know that one sin has a punishment of eternal death. One. It's all. And he was accused of all of them. And that's why he died. And Satan was just wringing his hands and saying, yes, 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 we got him now. I don't know how long it took. But if he had to go over every sin, if he, just, if he just had to go every one I've committed, it'd take a while. Now, don't you look at me like that. How long do you suppose it would take him to cover every sin that's been ever committed by those in this congregation? But the sins of the whole world for all of time had to be accounted for. And as long as one sin was left on the Son of God, Jesus stayed in the grave. Because death had power where there was sin. But one by one, Satan accused him of every sin. And one by one, he was proven innocent. <laughs> innocent sinless and when there were no more sins to lay to his charge it was Sunday and death had lost its power its sting and he arose aren't you glad for Sunday Amen. praise his name Friday the heart wrenching crucifixion Sunday the jubilant resurrection. We know that. So it's easy for us to get from Friday to Sunday because we know Sunday's coming. But they didn't know. Now, I thought it was ironic that the priests remembered that Jesus said he was going to be raised again. That's why they wanted to stone 
with the Roman seal on it so that they couldn't steal his body away. But the disciples somehow got caught up in their grieving and forgotten the things that Jesus had told them. Remember when Jesus was on the road to Emmaus after the resurrection and the disciples were on their way back home and he asked them what was going on and they couldn't believe that he didn't know. And then Jesus kind of chided them that they didn't understand what the prophets had said, what God had said through the prophets. I don't know how long the walk was, but the scripture says that that Jesus started in Moses and explained all that the scripture said about him. That'd be quite a walk. Yeah, God had spoken. Saturday was covered in the promises. They were just so caught up with the circumstances that they forgot the promises. I, uh, I almost stopped the praise team this morning when we were singing Standing on the Promises. I said to myself, how can we be standing on the promises when we're sitting in the premises? We need to stand up. Oh, yes, the the things that go through our minds just when we're having songs being sung. The clearest prophecy that I I found, or or at least that seemed like to me, is the one found in Psalm 16, verse 10. There it says, you'll not abandon my soul to Sheol. So that's talking about the spirit of Jesus going to paradise, Sheol, the place of the dead. You're not going to leave me there. The promise is, you're not going to leave him there. Nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. The body of Jesus was not going to decay. Clear prophecy. You're going to die. You're going to go to Sheol, but I'm not going to leave you there. And your body's going to be in the tomb, but it's not going to rot. The promises. Saturday was covered. Not only that, Jesus had told them. Remember, not too long before the crucifixion, they were looking at the temple and the disciples were remarking at how great it was and how beautiful and awesome. And Jesus said, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up again. And the religious leader said, yeah, you may have been a carpenter from Nazareth, but you ain't going to do that. Of course, he later explained to them what he meant, this body, the temple. He told him he was going to be raised from the dead. When he talked to them about being the good shepherd, he said that he had, this pow- he had the power to lay down his life for the sheep and the power to raise it up again. He covered Saturday. Death, resurrection. Doesn't matter what's in between. It may be Friday, but... All right, you're getting it. You're getting it. All right. 
Remember when Jesus was on the Mount of Transfiguration? Elijah and Moses were there. And after it was all over, I've often wondered why, but Jesus told Peter, James, and John, now don't you tell anybody about what happened here today until after I've been raised from the dead. I mean, how much more clear can you get than that? After Peter made the great confession, when Jesus asked, who do people say that I am? And they gave their responses. And Peter says, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. Peter says, I'm going to be killed. But on the third day, I'll rise again. Over and over, Jesus was preparing them, telling them, I'm going to die but I'm going to be raised. And that time in between is going to be like a silent moment when I'm not going to be saying anything and the Father's not going to be saying anything, but you have our word now. I'm coming back. We have silent Saturdays, right? Yep, we have silent Saturdays. Often they follow heart-wrenching events. Times when we pray and it seems like the heavens are brass and just we can't penetrate. We pray and it seems as though our prayers don't go any higher than the ceiling. Their silent Saturday was maybe 24 to 36 hours long. Sometimes ours are days weeks, longer. Not that God doesn't say anything about other things, but there's this situation, this event that we just don't know what's going on. We don't have any answers. We have questions. We don't know what God's doing. He seems to be silent. But look again. Look again. God has spoken. He may not be speaking to me right now in this moment, in this situation, but he has spoken. And I think the most important thing for us to remember when we face our silent Saturdays is to remember that silence does not equal inactivity. Just because we don't see something happening doesn't mean nothing's happening. Just because we don't see the results doesn't mean God isn't working on them. Remember, silence does not mean inactivity. Silence means that we need to remember what God has already said. We need to remember his promises, like the one found in Jeremiah 29, 11, where he tells us that he knows the plans that he has for us, not to hurt us, but to prosper us, to give us hope, to give us a future. Stand on the promises in your silent Saturday events. Isaiah re reminds us in chapter 55, verse 9, that his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. His ways are beyond our finding out. In your silent Saturday moments, 
Remember that. He's God. He's not limited to doing things the way that we do. Another promise that we like to quote often is Romans 8.28, for he will work all things together for our good. That's an interesting term, work all things together. It's a science term, and it's already 27 minutes after night. Sodium is a soft metal that has to be stored in oil because if it comes in contact with water, it can be explosive. Chlorine is a deadly gas. But if you work all things together, that's his term, if you put them together in the right way, you come up with salt, which is indispensable. Isn't that amazing? An explosive, a deadly gas becomes something we can't live without. That's what this means. This, he works all things together. He takes this horrible circumstance and this thing, and, and somehow he's able to make something good come out of all the bad things that seem to be happening. I love that verse. I love that verse. Remember, too, that his nature is love, and so that everything he does emanates from his love for us. We need to remember Psalms 119, verse 11, that admonishes us to hide his word in our hearts. Why? So that we will, like Job, not accuse him falsely of forgetting us or not caring, not wanting to be involved. What are Silent Saturdays? Those Saturday Silent Saturday events are the time between the problem is confronted and the solution is received. That Between that is a silent Saturday moment. Between the questions that we have being asked and the answers being received, that's a silent Saturday. Between the prayer that we submit to God and we get his response, we have them, silent Saturdays. But it does not mean inactivity. It doesn't mean absence. It doesn't mean apathy. It just means God's doing stuff we can't see. Sunday's coming. <laughs> Another thing struck me is that it was Saturday, and that doesn't mean a whole lot to us, but it was the Sabbath day for them. It was a day that God established in the Old Covenant for a time of worship and a time of rest. And the reason I have notes is because I'm going to stay right there with that and not go off into how far away we have gotten from observing the Sabbath. Back here. Back here. Time to worship. Praise God for who he is, not what you see him doing. A time for rest. To rest in confidence that he has it all under control. Your silent Saturday event can be a time of worship 
and rest, not frustration and fear. Amy's going to come and we're going to sing together Andrew Crouch's song, Through It All I've Learned to Trust in Jesus. If I never knew he had a problem, never knew God could solve them, never knew what faith in God can do. And as we sing, if you're going through a silent Saturday event, I'm going to invite you to, to come and kneel at the altar. And this is what I'd like for you to do. I don't want you to ask God, what are you doing? Or please do this or please do that. I want you just to come and praise him. That he's God. That he loves you. That he has plans that are good. He's going to take care of you. And then just praise him. And then rest in his promises. He's going to work all things together for your good. Let's stand as we sing it together. If you'd like to come and worship and praise the Lord on the silent Saturday.
faithful. Give us confidence to know that Saturday does not mean you're not involved. It means the answer's on the way. That you have heard us pray. You admonish, admonish us to cast not our way our confidence. So now by faith in him, you alone we stand, firmly held by your almighty hand, fully trusting in your promises. Praise your holy name. And all the people said amen. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week.